Okay. So, hi everyone. So we're going to call the meeting to order at 5:32. Uh, and Brenda, you can please do roll call. Okay. Lucia Angel. Here. Niha Banger. B. Franks Walker. Present. Richard Harvey Jr. Present. Loretta Mellon. Eric Murphy. I'm here. Mark Smith. Here. Derek So. Here. Ali Yassin. Here. We have a quorum. Thank you so much. Um, let me get the agenda on here. Um, so we are going to start um, with the chair report. Um, so just wanted to remind folks um, that if you have any agenda items that you would like to include uh, in future agendas, um, please you can send them to me, CC Heather. Um, and I think Brenda sent out our email addresses and contact information after the last meeting. So thank you, Brenda. Um, or you can always bring things up at the end of the meeting um, during the applicant board member com comments. Um, so that's also an appropriate place to bring up items. Um, and then um, yeah, I guess that's it. And so we'll go on to our first agenda item. Our, our next agenda item is a consenting of our previous um, minutes. So can I get, um, unless there are any objections, um, can we uh, move forward with a I make a motion that we accept the minutes as they are written from the last meeting. Thank you, B. Can I get a second? Uh, Derek Sue, I second the motion. Thank you so much. So, any objections? So, we'll move forward and approve the meeting minutes from our August meeting. Thank you so much. Um, so we'll move on to our next agenda item. It's our medical director report. Thanks so much. Um, you guys are going to hear so much from me today, so uh, <laughs> settle in. Settle in. Um, and please uh, feel free to hasten me along or ask questions or turn it into a conversation at, at any point. Um, for the medical director report, uh, I think we're going to continue to focus on the things that we have, the, what's going on with the COVID-19 homeless response, and then some follow-up on the discussions we've had about the um, public budget. And I think just to frame the medical director report, um, we have a responsibility as a board to monitor the health status of people experiencing homelessness throughout Alameda County, throughout our regional area, 
And a lot of what I try to focus on in the medical director report, it really complements what Heather focuses on in the program report. So I'm going to continue to try to focus on the bigger picture in this report of what's happening with people experiencing homelessness in Alameda County um, so that we can do the, the, the things that we need to do as a, as a board and as a staff to design programs that match the, the um, and manage our programs that sort of match the needs and the strengths and opportunities um, that are happening in, across the population. Um, so that's, that's kind of the form that the report has been taking and I think is going to continue to take going forward. And I just wanted to start with that, that bit of framing. Um, and with that, we can jump into what's going on with the COVID homeless response. So um, you all are used to seeing, I think, these, these numbers. Um, Really, there hasn't been a dramatic increase uh, or decrease in homeless cases and outbreaks. Um, the, the, um, the, the case rate um, and the overall pandemic among the homeless, the homeless population looks very similar to the general population. Um, so as of last week, we were at about 150 cases with slightly more in the unsheltered population. And we'd had uh, exactly 15 outbreak responses that had happened at homeless shelters and 15 responses that had happened um, at uh, encampment sites with about one or two new outbreaks each week. One of the things we're seeing kind of informally, um, anecdotally, you know, not, not able to track data on it really in any really sophisticated way, but many of the shelters where we're seeing outbreaks are where people are working more. Um, and so the, the outbreaks are often initiating at, um, you know, work at essential work locations and then being brought back to the shelter setting. And um, we've done a good job as a community, I think, containing those and preventing the outbreaks from taking hold in the shelters. So we call an outbreak, again, a single case. Um, and often we're able to keep down to, you know, that single case alone or two or three uh, additional cases in, in a shelter, even though people um, are obviously living in, in fairly crowded situations, and I think that's really a testament to the community of providers that we have. Um, but it does seem like even among people experiencing homelessness, um, you know, workplaces with essential workers are really a main a main driver, um, based on the anecdotes that you know that that um, that we're hearing. Go to the next slide. Um, so we reviewed the hotel sites, and now we actually have uh, some data over time, uh, which I know um, I like to see, and I know uh, Neha likes to see as well. So this is uh, this is the um, the occupancy of the Safer Ground hotels, which is the group of hotels that are designed for people who um, would be would be more likely to get very sick if they got coronavirus. This is not for people who are suspected to have coronavirus. Or who, um, or who have laboratory confirmed coronavirus, but rather people 60 and older or with multiple chronic illnesses who if they got coronavirus, it would be really, really serious. So we have worked as a community to move folks to hotels um, that are a safer place to stay, safer ground. So we now have over 1,000 units available actually as of last week. Um, and uh, as you can see, as of uh, August 27th, there are over 600 of those rooms were occupied. Um, now we're we're up closer to I think the 800 range. Um, there's a large site in Livermore, um, a site in Oakland that still has some vacancies, and then there are some scattered site housing that's rented around the county. Just small numbers of you know of, of um, places here and there that are also available. Um, but this is all filling up really quickly. Alameda Health System um, has been able to place 
a few of our patients, um, you know, who we've initiated the referrals into Safer Ground. Um, many of the folks who are in Safer Ground sites are Alameda Health System patients, whether we've initiated the referrals or not. So, for example, um, we just got some data back on uh, residents of the home-based trailer program. Those trailers are included in the Safer Ground program uh, that are off of uh, Hagenberger. Um, and um, about uh, a third of the people there are actually assigned to Alameda Health System. Um, but among those folks, only um, only six of the 30 that we looked at had been seen by a primary care provider inside of Alameda Health System in the last six months. So we have 29 patients assigned, and only only six of them had been seen by us. Only one had been seen by Mobile Health before we started going to that site regularly as well. So a lot of work to do to turn, you know, the insurance assignment into actual care. Um, both, you know, on the on the patient side, on the community side, and and uh, for us inside the organization. You can go to the next slide. Um, this is uh, Operation Comfort. You can see it's a little bit more jagged. Um, this is where we provide the isolation capacity for people who are suspected to have coronavirus or who are confirmed to have coronavirus. We need to be separated from others so they don't spread it on or quarantine capacity which is for folks who've already been exposed to coronavirus and we want to monitor them to see if they develop symptoms and keep them separate from other folks. Um, you can see the reason that it goes up and down like this is this is the main source of housing we use. If there's an outbreak at an encampment or a shelter, for example, we might need to clear out that shelter. So, you know, on May 22nd, there was a large facility that we had to clear out and, you know, fully 60-some people moved in, um, you know, in a single day. To, uh, to one of the Operation Comfort sites. So in this location, you know, we have to maintain some of that excess capacity so we're able to respond to large outbreaks if we need to that are, you know, that are in a shelter setting or a recovery program or, um, or uh, a street encampment setting. Let me go to the next slide. Um, so I think Lucia had asked about um, the race ethnicity data and what we can see is there's a little bit of variation in the race ethnicity of people who are participating in the COVID-19 housing programs compared to the distribution of the point in time count. Um, so the gray bars are for the point in time count. The uh, purplish bars are for operation uh, comfort and then the, um, the red bars are for operation safer ground. Uh, so you can see an overrepresentation of um, whites at um, both Safer Ground and Operation Comfort sites, comfort sites um, and about the same representation of Blacks and African Americans in the general population as it at Operation Comfort and uh, Operation Safer Ground. The multiple race category is much lower, and that may be a real thing or that may be an artifact of the way the data are collected, actually. Um, on the ethnicity side, um, we can see that people who identify as Hispanic or Latino are much more represented in Operation Comfort than, um, than they are in the point in time count overall. Um, and I think part of that is related to the fact that um, uh, although we don't have solid data, I think that um, people are undercounted uh, from the Hispanic Latino ethnicity in the point in time count. Um, and um, 
because of the way the way that the count is done, it sort of prioritizes street and shelter locations with people living in garages or living in places that are less visible, you know, who are trying to steer clear of immigration and other authorities are, are not easily counted there. Um, whereas, you know, we absolutely are seeing folks from, I've told you about some stories, you know, from those populations um, who need to, to be um, in the hotels for isolation or quarantine. Um, so uh, I think I think that's kind of the source of the of the discrepancy there in terms of operation comfort and safer ground. Uh, any questions about this, Lucy? I know this was data that you wanted to see. I'll just pause here for a second. This or anything that's come before. No, thank you for for bringing this. It's uh, it's really interesting. Um, but yeah, I don't have any questions right now. Yeah, I think it's really fantastic. The county's been um, been doing a great job tracking, you know, a lot of these data, being able to use them to understand what's happening and to, and to be able to make decisions. Um, and I think doing a great job just uh, keeping all of the shelter providers connected. Heather's on a weekly call with all of the shelter providers. Um, there's another weekly call with all of the street outreach providers. Um, and, uh, you know, I think the, the coordination of the response has really been among, among the better ones in the nation, and that, that continues. And can you go to the next slide? Damon, just before we move on really quickly, yeah. do you think that the, this gives us any feedback on if there needs to be a change on how the point in time count is done, if we are missing key demographics? Um, that's a good question. Um, I have not been following the uh, the planning for the 2021 point in time count, which is coming in January. Um, there's some requirements issued by the federal government around the methodology, so some some things are not changeable because you have to do them the, the way that the federal government asks you to do the count. Um, I do think that you know it's important for us to understand housing insecurity and homelessness the best we can and potentially to supplement the count with other data sources. And I do think it's an argument, for example, for us to do a really good job in our patient population understanding housing status because we can be one of those supplemental sources of data given that we provide care, you know, to such an enormous population. I think right. trends that might happen in our data might be relevant to other actors in the county. Um, so if it, you know, I'm not sure about the point in time count itself, but certainly is there a need for us to capture data in other ways that, that can fill out the picture? Absolutely. Great, thank you. Um, so this is just, um, you know, a, a orient us to what's coming next. Overall, the hotel capacity is expected to remain at about 1,200 units, so there aren't really plans in place right now um, based on, you know, my conversations with folks in the county to purchase or lease new sites. Um, that said, the safer ground eligible homeless population is much larger than 1,200 households. Um, so, you know, that's acknowledging that we have many, many folks who are at high risk of serious complications from COVID who are remaining in shelters or on the street. Um, but um, the collaborations really have, are now shifting focus to um, achieving long-term outcomes. And, um, you know, those are really well aligned with, um, with, the, with our priorities in the Homeless Health Center here really increasing access to permanent housing. So folks who can go from one of the hotels to a permanent situation, um, you know, that's obviously a win for that person and their life and that, that household if it's a family. 
um, and also creates a space to move someone else in. Um, so, um, you know, there's there's two good reasons really to focus on on access to permanent housing among the safer ground and the operation comfort population. And then, um, you know, both the the county healthcare for the homeless program and our health, homeless health center and other other folks are really focused on engaging folks in primary care. We have a population of people who have chronic illnesses, um, are are you know, at risk of bad um, outcomes from coronavirus, who are all in places right now um, where um, you know they're more accessible for us to do outreach, for us to engage folks, and try to connect them to primary care. Um, so that's really um, that's really something that we want to focus on over these next few months. So if you go to the next slide. Um, you can see the access to permanent housing data so far. So these are data the county you're going to track now as well, um, and I can continue to share with you all. The access to permanent housing, the goal is to get 400 folks moved from the, uh, from the, um, the safer ground and operation comfort sites. And so far, um, there's been almost 100 people out of that 400, so about 25% of the way toward the, toward the overarching goal. And then on the next slide, are some data on health insurance, which is really the first step to primary care engagement. Um, and you can see at the um, at the safer ground sites, 78% of people are actively insured. Um, and you know, probably a lot of the unmatched folks um, do have insurance too. We don't really know the answer for a lot of those folks. Um, at the operation comfort sites where people are staying for shorter periods of time and there's less possibility of connecting people to primary care, um, the rate of active insurance is lower at 58% among, this is among Medi-Cal covered consumers, which is the bulk of the population. Um, but we have a, a harder time, I think, in those sites anyway, engaging with that population. It's people who are, you know, they're suspected, they're laboratory confirmed coronavirus, they move in and they move out quickly, and so and typically there are other things going on in life um, that that sort of contribute to them either being um, being exposed or being infected with the coronavirus. Um, so that's a more challenging population for us to do outreach to anyway. So we've started to focus really early on. I told you that data from home base, for example, where we're going. We've started to focus on understanding who has Alameda Health System assigned primary care providers at those sites. And really, you know, health insurance is not a major driver of the disconnection there. So we should be able to get to quite a chunk of the 30 folks, you know, who are assigned to us and at least offer them a primary care appointment. And for those who don't accept, try to better understand what the barriers are. Um, so we have a couple um, kind of active efforts underway now where we're doing some data tracking and hopefully we'll be able to report that back to you in, um, in one of our next couple meetings um, as we start to see the results of that work that we're doing. So we can pause there and just see if there's any more questions about the coronavirus response overall or our our role in it with the homeless health center and mobile. Um, yeah, I have a question. This is Mark. Um, I'm having a problem with my phone, so I'm not sure how to raise my hand um, um, or mute uh, at the moment. Uh, but um, I, I did have a question about um, the ones that you, the, the persons that you were speaking of, that um, is unsure about whether or not they're insured or not, um, has there been any discussion about uh, whether or not to actually 
really determine whether whether or not they are or not? I don't know the answer to that. These are just administrative data, so they capture um, you know people's name and uh, date of birth and you know that kind of data when they come into the uh, the Safer Ground program site. And there's an authorization then to, to look up as part of that, you know, as part of, the, of entering the program to look up people's insurance status. And so these data come from that. They don't actually come from directly asking people what their oh, insurance status is. Um, so um, I do think there's an opportunity, um, you know, for for um, for folks who don't know who their insurer, you know, their insurer is or who their primary care medical home is, to, you know, to connect those folks as well. Um, the county has recently hired. Uh, two nurse practitioners to head the clinical care that's provided at the at the hotel and trailer site, uh, and one of their main focus areas is going to be connecting folks to primary care um, who are at those sites. So that's going to be you know part of their work almost certainly, Mark, to to try to find folks who may may not know they're insured. They may be in that seventy eight percent too, and just may not be actively you know using their health insurance. Um, as well as folks who are in that you know, no coverage or unmatched group and make sure that they're that they're matched to a provider. There are obviously folks who don't have Medi-Cal coverage too, um, you know, who are either over 65 and have Medicare or um, a smaller number of folks, a much smaller number of folks, but there are some who are on Health Pack, um, which is our, our um, coverage program for the uninsured. It's not technically insurance, but offers a lot of the same benefits um, in Alameda County. I had a question too. Um, this is uh, Eric. I had a question regarding two different areas. One is uh, I was um, recently they mentioned three million roughly Americans are um, being evicted from their um, their uh, from their um, from their places. Has that had a huge impact here in the area in terms of? The hotel capacity and also in terms of uh, new cases in terms of health um, health insurance or um, treating an influx uh, influx of new uh, patients we have um, two eviction moratoria operating at well, actually more than two multiple levels of eviction moratoria operating in Alameda County so there's a countywide um, ban on evictions essentially for the time being um, because of coronavirus, there's a statewide law in place that also uh, limits evictions. And then many of the cities, including City of Oakland, City of Hayward, are bigger cities where the where the epidemic is pretty active, also have limitations on eviction. I have not seen in any data sources that there's um, there's been a huge effect of eviction. I have had conversations with patients who, in spite of the moratoria, are fairly concerned about being evicted many of whom have informal rental arrangements. Um, so, you know, they're not, they're not necessarily on a written lease with a landlord. And I've encouraged those folks um, to be in touch with, you know, uh, legal advocates, because I think even in those cases, if, you know, if someone's accepting a check, um, that, that those, those renter protections should actually operate. But I do know that, you know, we have some sub, subset of our patient population that's very concerned about um, about pushing back and you know what's gonna what's gonna happen to them if they if uh, if you know someone tries to evict them because they can't pay their rent and they're in one of these more informal arrangements. That's just anecdotally from a couple patients that I've cared for. I haven't seen anything where eviction is a major driver of our epidemic locally. 
Nationally, on the other hand, uh, you know, many more concerns. Many states do have um, similar kind of laws in place, um, and the CDC has recommended that there be no evictions nationwide. But um, but I, I know that the, the the protections are not nearly as strong as they are here in other places in the country. Um, this is, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Dan. Do you have a follow-up question? I, oh, I, yeah, yes, I, yeah, actually, I, I, I did, um, I did want to um, speak to uh, what Eric was saying, uh, kind of, because one of my concerns um, as we go forward, and, and of course, knowing that we're going to have, uh, in the in the not too distant future, uh, some current and uh, projected cuts uh, um, to some of our program, uh, which is it seems like that's uh, likely. Um, one of my worries is that um, is that we might have to tighten up. Um, um, what's the word I want to use? Uh, we might have to tighten up. Um, um, who actually qualifies for the simple fact that um, there are going to be, I think, uh, huge swaths of evictions um, the, um, over time uh, when the moratorium is ended. Uh, some people will not be able to pay in arrears uh, to what that means because uh, the moratorium is only um, halting uh, them from having to pay rent, but they're still considered legally responsible. As a result, uh, a lot of people will be evicted, and of course, this this will, um, I'm afraid, will increase the overall general um, homeless population. That said, um, there might be a need to uh, look overall over um, qualifications for our program uh, in order to actually safeguard the program because. Uh, quite frankly, we cannot um, we cannot give care to everyone, and uh, that's certainly going to be that's certainly the case now, and it's going to be more so the case in the future um, uh, if we see increases in homelessness. Which I think, uh, um, barring anything unexpected, I don't see where that's not going to be the possibility. Um, it's going to be I think it's going to be inevitable that there's going to be a large increase in, in, in homelessness and um, in order to safeguard the program um, we have to think long and hard about about um, what requirements we're going to require in the future given the fact that we can't treat everyone so yeah I think um, this actually is a good segue into the next part of the conversation, which is really following up on the budget uh, discussions that we've had. So you can go ahead and advance to the slide. Um, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty around what's going to happen with the eviction moratoria, um, both the statewide and the um, and the the countywide and and the cities. So there's there's all sorts of overlapping rules that um, that are subtly different. But I think your larger point is is likely true that, you know, at some point um, the economic damage is going to catch up with us, and every time that's happened in the past, homelessness has increased. Um, I would say we have a statutory obligation to offer care to everybody, 
Um, and, um, you know, we're going to continue to do that, both at Alameda Health System, um, you know, overall and within the Homeless Health Center. I think our, our charge is to figure out how to do it um, more than to, to limit the services. Um, I do think that, you know, practically speaking, um, often the barriers to care end up limiting, you know, limiting the availability of services, just that it's, you know, it's not easy to drop in, you have to get an appointment, you, you might not feel comfortable um, with the care that's provided, there might be other priorities in your life. So, you know, practically speaking right now, the reason that of those 30 folks assigned to Alameda Health System, only six, you know, have seen their primary care provider have to do with barriers to care more than they have to do with us expressly, you know, rationing or limiting that care. Um, and that's just, that's a, a problem that we already have. And I think it's one that um, may get worse because of what you're talking about, Mark. Okay. Um, so uh, you can go ahead and advance the slides here. So just digging into the, you know, we had some of these conversations about the county budget just as an example of what's happening with public budgets and, and one that really matters for people experiencing homelessness. Um, you know, because especially because of the uh, health insurance implications and some of the core social services programs that are operated that really um, impinge on the lives of people experiencing homelessness. So you can go to the next slide. Um, so the county budget has been finalized. It had been finalized as of our last meeting as well, uh, but I wasn't aware at that time that there had been this large of an increase in the health care for the homeless program budget. So the county health care for the homeless program has had an $8 million increase primarily to cover um, a really a really big expansion of the uh, street health program, which is fantastic. So now the county is divided into 14 zones. Each of those zones is estimated to have between 400 and 500 people living on the street. And um, there's a nurse-led care team um, for each of those zones. It's either operated directly by Alameda County or contracted um, you know, with one with Lifelong or one of the community health center providers um, that is responsible for doing ongoing engagement and outreach to that population. Um, again, with the primary goal of connecting folks to a primary care provider and, um, and housing support. Um, really those, you know, those two things are kind of a refrain for all of us in the healthcare for the homeless network, permanent housing and primary care. Um, so it's really fantastic to know that our community will kind of be blanketed by this program I think, um, you know, just Mark, to your point, you know, this represents an expansion of a very downstream service of doing outreach to people who are already out on the street um, at a time when we're cutting back, if you go to the next slide, on some of those services that actually prevent folks from going out to the street. Um, so it's not necessarily all good news to me um, because I think what, what we're seeing is current and projected cuts that are incredibly relevant to people experiencing homelessness um, in the Medicaid program, you know, particularly behavioral health care, um, having to make some very large cuts. Mental Health Services Act is funded by millionaire tax. You know, the millionaires are not doing as well in some cases, and so there's a um, large reduction in the statewide um, um, revenue for the Mental Health Services Act program. Um, which is going to then lead to downstream cuts in some pretty important programs here in Alameda County. I don't know what those are specifically, but necessarily because Mental Health Services Act does fund um, some critical county mental health programs. Um, and then um, we've also uh, seen some proposals for changing the financing of the IHSS program, which is really, really critical for you know many of our homeless patients, housing insecure patients, just our patient population in general that. Um, 
that may push a significant cost to counties and ultimately result in cuts in those programs. Those are just two examples, I think, um, when you look at the, what's happening to the tax base and what's happening to the needs across the population, you can see that our major sources of revenue are declining because of the economy and the need, while the needs for the services are going up dramatically, just as Mark highlighted. And so um, these situations are going to get worse. They put enormous pressures on us, as, you know, as Mark um, highlighted. And I think um, for that reason, it's really, really important for us to follow these things, even though you know, it's not the direct program that we operate. I think um, it's important for us to, to try to figure out our programs and be creative about our programs in light of these things that are happening. So I just, I ended with a question to the group, which I think I just keep bringing up because um, I don't know the answer to it. Um, you can go to the next slide. Um, oh, I skipped one thing. Uh, go to the next slide and we'll come back to this one. Um, so the the last slide, sorry, go forward to, because um, I think that's, that's part, partial answer. Go forward one more. Um, no, back. There we go. Uh, no, forward. The question, just the question. Uh, slide 24, I think it is. Is that right? There's just a question. One more slide. There we go. That slide. So how can we best participate in budgeting and policymaking processes that affect the health of people experiencing homelessness in Alameda County? I think, um, you know, Mark highlighted in his question this tension of our responsibility to, you know, steward the programs that we oversee the best of our ability and really, and really focus there. Um, but I think, you know, if our charge is the health of people experiencing homelessness and primary care for people experiencing homelessness, these dramatic shifts that are happening around us are really important for us to think about. And, um, you know, I think um, moving forward, I'd love for us to try to figure out some ways to, um, to be involved in these questions, you know, maybe in um, partnership with the Healthcare for the Homeless Commission, maybe in partnership with the Public Health Commission or with, with other, you know, bodies that are responsible for saying, look at what's happening to the health of the overall population. Maybe GDP is up, maybe the stock market's up, but, you know, those of us who are responsible for monitoring and and improving the health of the population need to get together and, and figure out how we can participate in some of these budgeting and, and policymaking processes together. And so going back to slide 23, uh, this was one of the questions that Neha had asked earlier about that. What other budgeting models um, might better consider the health and wellness impacts? Because um, we talked about the county using a maintenance of effort pro process in a year when we knew that maintaining effort would be far from sufficient for the populate for the health of the population. Um, and uh, this webinar that um, the Govern Government Alliance on Race and Equity put together in June highlighted a couple different examples from uh, the city of San Antonio and the city of Denver around public budgeting processes. Um, San Antonio uses a budget equity tool that was developed by GARE itself. Um, GARE being the Gover Government Alliance on Race and Equity. I believe Alameda County is a partner, uh, is a member of the network of GARE. Um, so they use a 10-question tool that among those questions includes questions around what are the current gaps in your budget that hinder racial equity and describe the ways in which disaggregated racial data was actually used in the budget process. Um, and so this is, you know, the, the city publicly responds to these questions in the GARE toolkit and really at least have to run through their thinking, what are the impacts of the ways that we're budgeting that we can, that we can guess might happen 
um, for racial equity. Um, so you know, it seemed like a helpful tool. It seemed like one that Alameda County maybe already has um, some some connection to the organization that's the proponent of that tool. And then the other presentation was from the city of Denver. They use a performance-based budgeting framework rather than a maintenance of effort framework. So they really look at how do the programs we funded perform last year, um, and how do we look at that you know funding to make changes in the year ahead. Um, this is a more common budgeting framework, you know, for like the private sector, or it's kind of based on a lot of private sector budgeting frameworks. There's been a lot of critique of performance-based budgeting in the public sector because a lot of our um, the things we're trying to achieve aren't just you know one revenue target the way a business usually is operating, and so it could be harder to actually answer questions around performance because of all the trade-offs that we have to consider and things like. You know, in our setting, it's like access and quality can sometimes trade off. How many people, how much good, which diseases, why, which population. Um, but in any case, Denver has Denver has really built equity into how they think about performance, and uh, in particular, they use they use an opportunity index to try to get at some of those questions of you know meeting a broad um, desire for wellness among families and people um, that that actually um, is in some ways defined by the population. That, that equity and opportunity index, I think, was put together by a number of community partners in Denver for, for just this purpose. And so they use a framework that allows for changes that are based on, you know, what do we need the performance of this organization to be this year on the basis of what the needs are in the population rather than saying we're going to maintain effort from last year. So these are just a couple models um, that I was able to find. Again, I'm, like, way, way far from an expert on this. So, you know... Any, anywhere else that, you know, any, any other member of the cab wants to take up this question and look for it, uh, look for answers, I think, um, I think would be helpful. And, and like I said, I think um, we'll talk about it in my assessment as well. You know, the, the well-being of our population um, and, you know, the, health, the quality of health care that the population can receive depend in large part on what's happening in the policy and budget environment around us um, just as much as they do on, on our actions. So it's important that we pay attention to those things even as we, you know, take a lot of responsibility for the programs that we that we operate. And I'll um, pause there and just take any more questions before we move to the next session. May yeah, I go ahead? Okay. I was I was trying to find a <laughs> could you virtual raise hand or um I was wondering if there is a ways that we can integrate any of the lessons learned from from these models into the work that's happening in Alameda and if so uh how can we how can we push that agenda forward? I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what happens with the health equity, diversity, and inclusion initiative within Alameda Health System. Um, so, you know, in our own organization, um, I think, um, you know, the, the task forces that are working on health equity in our organizational level, I think I'm, I'm hoping that we, we bring tools like this to bear on those conversations as we move forward. And I think our best avenue forward is to participate in those and be really be really supportive, bring forward these models within that process that, you know, that our board and our CEO are leading. Um, I think within the county-wide process, uh, I, I think the Public Health Commission, I think the Public Health Department is a place that's actually driven our participation in GARE. 
in the government alliance on race and equity. And so I'd be curious, I don't know the answer, but I'd be curious as to whether the commission is already bringing up questions like this. Um, I haven't reviewed, you know, their their recent, you know, minutes or, or, you know, any meetings that they've had. But I think that might be a place to look to say, can we try to project population health impacts, project health equity impacts of the budget process, and can we use some of these tools to do it um, since they're already, you know, already kind of connected to the network? Um, this is uh, this is Mark again. Uh, one thing, um, even though I'm not familiar with either of these two models, um, it, there it, there might there might be a situation in which um, uh, in which we may not be able to necessarily adopt uh, the, uh, the, the 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 full um, the, the full um, strategies that are that are being um, put forth by these models, but that doesn't mean that we cannot adopt certain elements of the same model that might uh, work for us. Um, in other words, I'm saying, I guess what I'm trying to say is that it, 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 it may not be necessary for us necessarily to adopt um, models uh, in whole as of themselves, but maybe elements of those models that 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 uh, basically fit our program and um, our function. I think that's right. Yeah, I think that's one of the reasons I'm, I'm hopeful about the heavy the health equity, uh, diversity, and inclusion um, uh, committee because I think, you know, we have, you know, we have people who are finance experts actually on those committees. And so I think, you know, they can, they can do much better than I can to say, well, hey, this part actually could apply where we are. And, we think it might have some impact, and so um, I think it's important for us to look around, borrow from the best, and and adapt to you know to do the best we can without without seeing perfect as the enemy of the good. I think that was well said, Mark. All right, great. It sounds like if there's no other questions, we can move to the next uh, agenda item. I think. So the um, the onboarding assessment, you all got quite a boatload of reading um, in this packet, and uh, I expect that it'll be something you know that uh, there's information even there that I can't remember um, because you know a lot of it was just trying to document what I could see when I came in. I wanted to take the opportunity joining the organization to try to give a bit of an outsider's perspective on it. You know, sometimes when you get involved in the weeds of something. Um, you lose the opportunity then to see it kind of from a, from a broader lens. And so I wanted to um, take that opportunity as I was onboarding to kind of share my thoughts with, with you all around what is the outside and look at the, um, at the Homeless Health Center program. Um, I made some slides as well, which we'll walk through right now. Um, the, the document is much more detailed, includes some references. Um, and so, you know, I'm sure um, some of you were able to look at that ahead of time. Some of you will probably want to look at it moving forward. Um, please feel free to draw from anywhere for questions. And I think this will, you know, try to form kind of the story and structure of our program moving forward. I think we can evolve this as, as you know, any of us, you all or myself go to other places and present, what does our program look like? What are we about? What do we do? We want to we want to be able to kind of understand the broad um, structure of the program and what we're working on as a group. So I'm hopeful that the assessment also fills that role for you all. The 
providing, you know, a bit of an overview that um, we can evolve over time and use different parts of it, you know, in different settings as we're talking about the Homeless Health Center. Um, you can go to the next slide. And through the, we can go through the whole document to the slide deck. Just starting with the PowerPoint, yeah. So um, there's kind of four four overall parts. I started to I uh, started with a breakdown of homelessness and housing insecurity in Alameda County. We've talked a lot about that already through the medical director reports. That's sort of the population health lens that we're responsible for following and understanding and kind of shaping our program around um, on the basis of you know our consumer-led board, your input, and on the basis of needs assessments that we conduct at regular interviews at regular intervals. Um, so we'll we'll try to fly through that part. And then um, the second part is uh, focusing on what the situation is for primary care for people experiencing homelessness in Alameda County. Um, then we'll really look at the Homeless Health Center as an entity and um, the current state of the Homeless Health Center and a bit of a SWOT analysis of strengths and weaknesses that are internal to the Homeless Health Center and opportunities and threats that are coming from outside the Homeless Health Center. And then dive into my preliminary recommendations, in which are just in kind of three overarching buckets. Um, so, um, any areas that people would love me to focus on more among those? Great. I'll just, I'll just go with the flow and please feel free to raise hands or interrupt them um, along the way if, if you have a question. Um, I think just a quick one for me, about. I think it's, uh, uh, the first one, the homelessness and housing insecurity in Alameda County is one I think that just kind of really stands out for me. Okay, great. So I'll try to highlight some, some elements in there that are things that we haven't necessarily talked a lot about in, in this group yet. Anyone else? Thanks for that, Eric. Um, uh, one that I don't think is really easy, this is Mark, um, uh, one that is not easy to really um, address, I think, is also this um, this idea of of supposed or possible uh, nearly universal eligibility for coverage um, among people who are who are uh, homeless, um, um, but uh, have lapses in coverage. And one of the things is being able to capture people who 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 are who can be identified as such, and being able to give them um, uh, to, uh, the tools. Um, to be able to stay um, close to care so that basically um, they can move up and out of, of, of our program into actually um, a, um, another level of health care, for instance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'll talk a little bit about some of uh, I think in the opportunity category something around, around that um, trying to trying to address lapses in coverage and sort of gaps in the system in our network where, you know, one provider is not necessarily um, overlapping with another one. And so people can, you know, fall through the cracks. We can talk about some specific examples of that. And I think, I think the opportunity that Care Connect, which is our social health information exchange, provides for us to, <coughs> excuse me, 
be a little bit better about that. Um, can I mention something else? Please, go ahead. Yeah, there was one other thing that um, I, I've talked about um, at the at the clinic, at the Franklin 14th Street Clinic before. Uh, one of the things, unfortunately, uh, is just a part of life being a county uh, health system is that you have a lot of really good people um, who really do care uh, about people in general, no matter uh, what the circumstance, uh, who are trained professionals, trained medical staff, uh, who simply just don't stay. You know, they 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 find a better paying um, outpost somewhere in the medical field, and and they leave our service. And um, there is this frequent turnover, and the only reason why I bring it up is because because uh, even me, um, a person who's who lives in a uh, lives in an apartment who's housed and it has uh, medical insurance and so on. Um, you know, even a person like me, um, I don't I don't typically like it when uh, I'm seeing a specific doctor and I become comfortable with that doctor and all of a sudden I come one day and that doctor's no longer there. And um, I think that's true for just about anybody. And um, that's one of the issues we have, um, especially on the county level, because um, we have it also uh, pretty prevalent in our clinic uh, at the 14th Street Clinic is uh, a high turnover rate among um, among people that we uh, that are hired and they stay and uh, and usually it turns out that we wind up being only a stepping stone to somewhere else um, but they don't stay for long and um, it's good for them it's good for them um, uh, and good for for them professionally. Um, but it does impact um, it does impact uh, people who get who receive care from them because uh, people do tend to identify with their doctor once they get to know the person and become comfortable they, they identify with that person and they come in and they expect to see that person that person's not there and then they become more some not all but some homeless people do and can become hostile to the fact that they that they're having uh, they're put in a situation of having to see something someone else that they don't know yeah I'm really glad that you raised that I think uh, I didn't highlight it if I remember in the assessment um, but um, there's a lot of evidence generally um, to support the idea that continuity of care with um, you know with health health care providers, nurse practitioners, physicians, but, you know, with the care team overall, with care managers is a really, really, really important factor. Um, and, um, and we do have challenges, and, and they are complex. Um, they're related both to burnout on one end and to people getting well-trained and enjoying their job and then get off, getting offered, you know, thousands of dollars more for another job and, and having a personal opportunity because, you know, because, um, we do have a program, you know, uh, both here, I think, at, um, at Alameda Health System and, you know, among the network um, of healthcare for the homeless providers that is, that is full of good people and people do tend to learn a lot, you know, in their first couple years um, in the program and, and often become, you know, really attractive to other, to other programs. Um, so uh, I, I just appreciate that, that point, Mark. Um, let's go ahead and jump in unless there's anyone else who has 
another another thing they want me to kind of focus on or highlight as we go through? Great. So yeah, as, and you can feel free to um, raise your hand or, or interrupt as we go as well. Um, so this is a slide I, I think I've shown at least three times before. Homelessness is widespread and increasing in Alameda County. You can see we really stable at about 4,000 people who are experiencing homelessness. Um, you know, from the time the count started to around 2015, um, and then um, and then really between 2015 and 2019, a doubling of people. And again, this is people that we can count. We've already talked about the problem with not being able to count a lot of folks who are experiencing homelessness. Um, really, mostly driven by dramatic increases in. Um, in median rent, you know, in, in the prices on the rental market. And, um, and it used to be that the unsheltered population was, uh, was about, it was about 50, 50, you know, back in 2015 and, um, really the dramatic increase, um, you know, which we see in the data and we can see with our eyes has been in the unsheltered population up to over 6,000 unsheltered in 2019, probably higher today. Next slide. So of course, uh, I showed this slide as well. People experiencing homelessness suffer from very high rates of disabilities and chronic diseases. You know, in the healthcare world, uh, we really include um, uh, substance use disorders, alcohol and drug use among those chronic diseases. We think of those as chronic diseases, um, as well as psychiatric and emotional conditions. Um, so 42% of people, you know, who um, were surveyed as part of the point in time count um, reported a disabling condition. This is extremely, extremely common in this population. Next slide. Um, we've talked about this a lot as well. So black, black people experience by far the highest burden of homelessness. Um, so 11% of the population in 2017, 47% um, of the homeless population, um, the rates are similar for foster care, you know, for criminal justice involvement. Um, and those, you know, those are main drivers of homelessness. Um, so. Racial equity is really, uh, racial inequity is, you know, a core driver of homelessness. Um, people, um, you know, who are African-American are much more likely to live in um, areas with severely concentrated poverty in Alameda County. So even people who are poor and white are likely to live in neighborhoods that are not necessarily concentrated poverty. They're, they're not around other folks. Um, who are um, also living in poverty to the extent that African-Americans are. They're not around systematically underfunded public infrastructure, systematically underdeveloped, um, you know, local economies the way that African-Americans are. Um, the and high crime. And high crime, right. A product of redlining and, and you know, really racist underdevelopment in these areas and, um, you know, and ongoing um, you know, racial discrimination, which we can see evidence of in, you know, in the policing um, environment in the United States right now. Um, so it's really, this is really stark and just always worth emphasizing how um, kind of shocking this, uh, this disparity is. Um, and, and we definitely see it in, you know, in all the work that we do. As you saw earlier, the hotel populations really look like the homeless population overall. And so um, it's, it's something that, um, you know, that's just always front and center for us as, as uh, healthcare for the homeless providers. Um, you know, this HUD homelessness is really only the tip of the iceberg of housing insecurity in our program. Um, we consider people who are couch surfing or who are doubled up 
as also being homeless um, uh, under the HRSA definition of homelessness. And it's hard. There's no real count of that population. Um, but, you know, we were talking about evictions earlier. This is one of the uh, Moms for Housing activists who um, faced eviction after Christmas from, uh, from the house in West Oakland that those activists took over. Um, and uh, you can see on the left, there's a, a graphic looking at an estimate of the number of affordable rental homes Alameda County would actually need to house everybody um, in, you know, non-crowded conditions. Um, and we need 52,000 more affordable rental homes. Um, so just to give you a sense of, you know, of scale, we're about a million and a half people in Alameda County. Um, you know, it's 8,000 people homeless, but 52,000 households short of the, of the affordable, you know, rental homes that we need. Um, and, and we see this every day in the care that we provide at Alameda Health System that people have, you know, many, many people have very insecure housing situations that dramatically impact their health. Next slide. Um, so that, that pauses there. Eric, was there anything in there that you wanted me to double click on or talk more about? You're on mute. I don't know if you are trying to <laughs> No, actually, uh, um, it, this part, the, the last slide did catch my attention. I don't have uh, immediate questions, but so, uh, or, or I do, so if this, I see it has the 2019 on there. Is this also stating that this is an upcoming concern for post-Christmas 2020, or is this for... No, that was just a headline from the article. Sorry, that was, that was a headline from the article for last year. Um, oh, okay. And just to highlight, you know, what a family looks like. It's, it, you know, moms with young babies as well as, um, you know, the individual, you know, older men who've been incarcerated. I mean, it, it really affects the entire population, entire gamut of the population. So sometimes people have a different picture of homelessness, and I just wanted to um, wanted to show kind of the, that picture of housing insecurity of folks who are, you know, being bounced out and staying doubled up in other people's places or going to a shelter for a little bit, but then you know, doubled up for a little bit. Um, and, uh, and I think, you know, that, that, um, that uh, um, organizing effort, the Moms for Housing effort is very grounded in, in health equity principles. A lot of the arguments they're making are, um, are grounded in the idea that, um, that the system um, that, you know, leaves people homeless is unjust in part because of the health impacts, you know, that, that for example, those young children are gonna suffer. And so, um, you know, not to endorse any specific acts, but just to say that the, the, the rationale um, that, that many of those activists are using is, is, is based in um, the impacts on health that, uh, that folks suffer from, from being housing insecure and homeless. And Ditch, um, say, uh, I, I've often not kept up with the mom, uh, Moms for Housing. Have you seen, like, perhaps a... a uh, like a positive shift in terms of the number of homelessness, uh, mainly for like m mothers, or uh, or uh, was there any like impact that that may have helped? And also in terms medically, like has there been a shift in terms of uh, health uh, healthcare? Uh, uh, David. 
Damien, before you answer that question, if, yeah. I, if he doesn't mind me slipping in, uh, I'd be interested in that uh, specifically as it, uh, he mentioned moms. I was thinking um, I'd be interested in that question uh, as it might uh, uh, um, uh, pertain to uh, single parents. Mm -hmm. Yes. I haven't seen any data on the impact of that particular movement. You know, I think we'll, we'll see what's happened overall with family homelessness, which is broken out within the homeless point in pack count in uh, January of 2021. Um, the count, you know, may be really complicated by the coronavirus effort and obviously many, many other things have been happening. So it will be hard to piece apart the impact of that effort. I will say that I think um, there's been a lot of media attention on um, on the issue, and that's been a, that's been a major impact of it, and and a lot of that media has actually focused on health impacts, um, and so I think um, you know from that from that perspective, I think um, it's been helpful to get the message out around the connections between between housing and health, um, if nothing else. Mm -hmm. Great. All right, so let's talk so about primary at, care. Oh, sorry. Oh, go ahead. So we're looking at more like probably possibly February, March because of the COVID that some of the data collected may be about a month or two longer than normal. You know, I think the, the challenge is going to be for collecting the data and actually going out and doing the count. Um, I think once the, and the data have to be collected in the last week of January, that is um, a requirement from the federal government. Um, I don't know if that's going to be loosened. Um, I, haven't, I haven't been following that closely. It may be. Um, if the data are collected the same month, I don't think it will take any longer for them to come out. Um, so um, I can follow up and, and just find out more about what, you know, what's happening with the point in time count because there have been a couple questions about that. Um, and, and then we'll, we'll obviously you know, present that data to you all as soon as, uh, as, soon as it's available from the, um, from the community. Sounds good. Um, great. So we can go to the next slide here. Um, Damon, by the way, I, I can't see slides or anything like that, uh, but I did get, you know, I did get the, the, the board book, and I'm just curious, um, where in the board book are you at? Uh, which page would, 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 would your slide be highlighting? We're on page 44 now. Uh, the title says, Alameda County has low numbers of uninsured, many of whom are eligible for health pack. So we're in the section of the PowerPoint presentation at the end. And again, okay. this is the same content that's in the more detailed uh, memo that you all have. Um, I wanted to put it in another format just to make sure it was as accessible as possible for as many of you as possible. I know some people like to see things more visually displayed like this. Other people, you know, like to read in detail. So I wanted to try to provide some other some other ways of getting into this really. Some of this stuff is pretty complicated, so I was trying to make it as accessible as possible. But, you know certainly let me know if there are, you know, easier ways to present things or look at things. Um, so Alameda County has low numbers of uninsured overall. Um, you can see our total uninsured estimated in 2017 at 84,000. I think the health pack um, population is somewhere around 50,000. Catherine, do you know the number exactly for health pack in Alameda County? We don't, yeah, I don't either. And I couldn't, I couldn't find it readily um, when I was putting these slides together, but, um, you know, especially low-income uninsured population in Alameda County without the county coverage program that provides primary care, it's a very small population of people, honestly. 
Um, so really eligibility for insurance is not a major driver of lack of access to primary care because health pack folks are assigned medical homes um, and, and they're able to access you know, our, our medical home and Alameda Health System, the other community clinics pretty easily. Or they're eligible to, I should say. They're, they're able to get eligibility pretty easily. Um, next slide. Um, this is just a story from a newspaper down in Palm Springs that I think the, the headline captures the, the reality of the situation that I try to describe. And really, you know, it's not an issue that's particular to Alameda Health System or Alameda County. I think, if anything, we do a lot better than a lot of other places in the country around this. But it's just a really common challenge that having insurance doesn't often translate into receiving care. Um, and, you know, people, we listed a, a number of the barriers there. Um, you know, some barriers just around, is there outreach and engagement? Do people know when, you know, redetermination is happening and there's a lapse in coverage, as Mark brought up earlier, you need to submit your applications and make sure you're still eligible. And, you know, that annual process itself um, often loses folks who don't have the same phone number they had last year, don't have the same address they had last year, and aren't in touch with the system and leads to something that's, you know, called Medicaid churn in the field. Um, and then, you know, beyond those sort of barriers to staying insured, even if you're eligible, um, you know, this continuity is a barrier, as, as Mark described. Um, competing interests for patients, you know, often getting housing, getting, uh, getting food can be a more important concern and, and uh, can be challenging enough, you know, versus um, what it takes to actually schedule appointments and meet up with the provider you're assigned to at the same time that they're available to see you. I think um, scheduled appointments could be a major barrier for people experiencing homelessness to getting care versus drop-in availability. Um, and then obviously there's, you know, there's stigma that can come, you know, either from being um, overtly mistreated, um, you know, it, it's something that, that patients describe that's in the literature and also from being treated uh, just differently because of your housing situation. So even expressions of pity, um, you know, can, can shame people. Um, I had a, a patient um, who was at the winter shelter one year, and um, he had to go to the bathroom and didn't pick up his cot. And then there was an overhead announcement um, just to remind everyone in general to pick up your cot. And um, the patient really took the overhead announcement personally as if they didn't want him to be at the shelter and stayed outside for the rest of the winter, even though he had a place guaranteed for him at the winter shelter that year, and described really that being the main reason, that he didn't feel welcome because, of, because um, he felt blamed for having to go to the bathroom and not being able to pick up his, his cot on time. Um, and so I think, you know, we talk a lot about stigma um, and gloss over it a lot, but it's it's a really core issue, people feeling dignity and interactions that, you know, comes out in my, you know, conversation with patients and I think is, is pretty well described in, you know, the, the sort of evidence base around what, what barriers to, um, to care are for people experiencing homelessness. Now we can go to the next slide. Um, Alameda County and Alameda Health System are actually really well known for models of care that reduce barriers. So our Healthcare for the Homeless program is one of the first Healthcare for the Homeless programs in the nation, established in the 80s. Gigi Greenhouse has an award named after her and, you know, for the National Healthcare for the Homeless Council that they give out each year. Um, this medical van you can see in this newspaper, art clipping on the right, is uh, 
is the van, you know, the same program that we operate. It was operated by Alameda County Medical Center when Alameda Health System was still part of the county. And then it stayed with the county when the Alameda Health System split off from the county. And then, you know, Heather and I partnered to try to move the van back closer to the health care services and back into Alameda Health System. So, you know, we have a really proud legacy here. On the left is Dr. Reinking, who's the medical director of the clinic that Mark's referencing on 14th Street at Lifelong. He um, was our first street medicine provider. Um, you know, for, we had our first small contract for that service. Really, um, you know, um, was, a, was another um, sort of at the forefront kind of model of care that now is expanding through Alameda County. So we're, we're pretty well known actually for um, trying to do things that, you know, make really low barrier care accessible. Um, here in Alameda County, and, and even so, I think we all we all acknowledge that we still continue to have major challenges here, even though it's a strength of our program. Next slide. Um, so this is uh, just a general assessment of the homeless health center. There's like a lot of complex stuff in here, so feel free to slow me down, ask questions as you need to, because unfortunately health centers are pretty complicated. Um, <laughs> I think it's worth it's worth being a health center, but uh, it, it can be a lot to explain. So by all means, feel free to you know, raise your hand and slow me down um, as for any part of the presentation. Um, so you can go to the next slide. Um, so what is a community health center? Um, this is a picture of the Delta Health Center in Mississippi, which is one of the first two community health centers. Um, community health centers provide primary care services in underserved areas that meet a stringent set of requirements, including providing care on a sliding fee scale based on the ability to pay and operating under a governing board that includes patients. So that's the sort of overview of, of um, what a health center is from the HRSA point of view. The historical point of view, um, health centers really evolved from a care model um, led by the Kark family in, in South Africa. Um, so, you know, they're an uh, activist family um, really working uh, to limit the health impacts of apartheid and, and of racial oppression in South Africa and developed a community-oriented primary care model. Um, American students, medical students, rotated through um, that clinic setting and really brought back elements of the model, including consumer governance. Um, to the United States, and that was the foundation of the first two health centers in, in Mississippi and in Boston. So it comes out of the social justice movement. Um, it's you know it's a reverse innovation. It comes from Africa, actually. Um, the idea of community-oriented primary care to you know to the uh, developed world. It's it's developed by Africans, you know, by Africans in America in the in the Delta. Um, I think that's a poorly told part of the story. Um, Jack Geiger, who was, uh, you know, one of those medical students who was in South Africa, brought the model back, was instrumental in establishing it. He, uh, he when he was a teenager, was, uh, was pretty much raised by a lot of the folks in the Harlem Renaissance. Um, there was uh, an actor, Canada, I can't remember his last name, Canada Lee, I think, uh, Langston Hughes, you know, they all kind of uh, groomed Dr. Geiger, um, who, you know, is known as one of the leaders of the movement. So, um, you know, I think we often talk about the, uh, the suffering of, you know, African descended people, and we rarely talk about the strengths, but uh, the Community Health Center movement is really built on a foundation of, of black activism around the world. And, uh, and it's an amazing model. You know, there have been studies that show 
that the care provided, in spite of the population being much thicker, much poorer than the rest of the care in the United States, that the, the quality of care provided across community health centers in the United States is essentially equivalent to the quality provided in the rest of the healthcare system in the United States, which is an amazing testament to, to the care provided in these centers. Now, you got a question? I think you're on mute. I actually had a quick anecdote to add to the to the innovation that Please. I was I was uh, hearing a podcast recently that also talked about how African American men were really the ones who brought uh, paramedic care that it was a it was in the continuum of care that paramedic care was actually missing and because they were not encouraged to be to be doctors or really be part of the hospital care this was something that they were trained to do, and then that was a profession that came into being because of the work that was done by African American men in the in the United States, and it didn't exist as a profession before that. So there's definitely a lot of um, what we see as care today that's overlooked, and, and the and the work that's been done by by people um, of, of the particular race have been overlooked. So I just wanted to add yeah. that. Too. Yeah, that was in Pittsburgh, I believe, with a, a female physician also. Who was the major, um, the major uh, uh, physician who was involved? That's right. In that. Yeah, yeah. And that got it dumped on her. Like, what are you going to do? And <laughs> this woman and these black men, you know, developed basically the the profession of, of paramedicine in the United States. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah these are really you know uh, important stories. I think for us to tell. Um, next slide. So the potential benefits of a community health center, really the major one is, you know, you all. Um, Patient-led and consumer-led governance is, uh, is a major innovation to drive health equity. I think um, people who are closer to the strengths and the challenges of the communities that we're providing care for have better ideas, um, provide better oversight, and, and lead to better care. Um, and so that's a major advantage of, of being a community health center. Um, you know, the other significant advantage is higher payment rates for Medicare and Medicaid. Um, so <clears throat> those don't actually um, lead to, especially in California, like equal rates of funding um, to Medicare or, uh, or, or to private insurance across the entire system. So it's important we don't think that these higher payment rates mean that we actually have an equitable financing of the, care, of the system. We don't. We don't have nearly as much money as Kaiser or Sutter, for example, to care for our payment. Um, but we do have more. We do get paid better for a visit with a Medicaid, you know, patient on Medicaid or Medi-Cal in California than I would, for example, if I were in private practice on my own. I just sent a bill to the state. Um, and so on the order of ten times more, you know, that that we make um, by being a health center than I than I would if I were in private practice by myself. So that's a really important benefit of being a community health center. Um, so you can be a county health system and you can be a community health center at the same time, which we are. Next slide. But as you all know, it's very complicated. <laughs> so um, this, the top line is really uh, just shows all the governance bodies that are involved in operating the health center um, that we are. So uh, starting from the left, Alameda County Board of Supervisors has a co-applicant agreement. Um, with the Healthcare for the Homeless Commission um, that enables them to meet the governance requirements of being a health center. And, um, and so they jointly govern the Healthcare for the Homeless program, which is itself a health center. And then 
the Healthcare for the Home program has a contract with Alameda Health System. Um, that contract makes us a sub-recipient of HRSA dollars. And through that designation as a sub-recipient, we are eligible to be a community health center. Um, as a result, we're required to have our own um, co-applicant board, which is, again, this board. And this board has a co-applicant agreement with the Alameda Health System Board of Trustees that allows us to jointly apply for, uh, for the sub-recipient funding, um, essentially, um, that allows us to operate the, um, the, the health center. So this is, uh, this is the kind of complex arrangement that allows us to be both a county health system that's you know, governed by elected officials like the Board of Supervisors and their appointees, the Board of Trustees, and governed by, um, by compliant uh, health center boards. The Healthcare for the Homeless Commission has waivers, so they're actually not a consumer-led board. They don't have a 50% majority. Our board does not um, um, receive those same waivers, so um, we conform more closely, actually, to the to the health center statute than um, the Healthcare for the Homeless Commission does. Um, so yeah, I'll pause there and just see if there's any questions around the sort of governance arrangements here, which are pretty complex. Actually, can you, that very last part, can you repeat that in terms of the, you said, one, the commission was more consumer-based, or uh, I missed that last part you mentioned. Yeah, uh, this the Healthcare for the Homeless Commission has, has a waiver that allows them not to meet the full standards of a, um, of a consumer-led governance board, so they're, they're allowed out of some of the requirements, um, whereas our co-applicant board comes more close to meeting all of the requirements um, of a consumer-led governing board um, that, uh, that is intended to, to govern community health centers. Does that make sense? We have more consumers yeah, on our that, board uh, than they have. Okay, thank you. Great, so we can go to the next slide and People, we can come back to this if there's any questions about it. So um, the, the scope of a homeless health center is determined by a few different factors. One of them is the site. So the way that we're, um, we're able to say which parts of Alameda Health System are part of the community health center, like in that little circle, versus which parts are in that bigger circle um, depends in part on um, which site. So, these are the sites that are in the little circle. You can see the wellness centers, Hayward Wellness, Highland Wellness, Newark Wellness, Eastmont Wellness. And then um, in addition to that, um, our mobile clinic is, of course, um, part of the site. The same-day clinic, which is now called Urgent Care, which is on the fourth floor of Highland, um, is um, part of the scope of, um, of our community health center. And, um, and the dental clinic based at Highland is part of the scope of our community health center. Um, the state is where um, we're actually able to receive that benefit of, um, of higher billing rates. And so even though the federal government may consider us to be a community health center um, by having a, a site that's included in our scope of services, we have to apply separately to the state to be paid as what's called a federally qualified health center. But the state designation, the state says, the feds have qualified you for this high level of, higher level of payment, and we've also qualified you. It's kind of a weird term, because it's, it's also a state qualification. 
So we have some sites, our wellness centers, uh, for example, where we're able to bill for um, uh, that higher rate of uh, payment for Medi-Cal. We have other sites that are not part of that designation where we do not bill for higher rates of Medi-Cal. So our urgent care, for example, um, and uh, the annex at Highland and the dental clinic are not billed at federally qualified health center rates, even though they are part of the scope of the health center that we're all responsible for overseeing. So that's a little complicated too, but hopefully, hopefully it makes sense. I have a question. Uh, this is Mark sure. again. Um, and I, I think I did um, talk to Heather about this once before. Um, I'm just wondering, um, you know, I was kind of surprised at one point uh, early on uh, as the as this board was just starting, I had asked about whether or not, uh, why not, why was not uh, John George uh, considered uh, part of the framework? And the only reason why I had asked the question at the time, because uh, typically, of course, as you very well know, a lot of the patients uh, and the type of people we get as patients are people that also have other mental, mental health challenges. And in some cases, it's very difficult to give medical, uh, to give real sound medical treatment uh, when the person is not uh, mentally able to receive medical treatment, if that makes sense. Uh, yeah, I mean, I wish you were with me in clinic today. Um, yes. Uh, it makes sense for us to work very closely with John George. Um, we can go to the next slide, actually, because I think it addresses this issue. Inpatient services are not a service that's provided by community health centers, so, you know, and emergency room services are not either. So um, John George would never qualify to be on the scope of services that we oversee. Um, but I think um, being part of the same institution in Alameda Health System you know, it's one of the benefits, the potential benefits of combining a county health system and a community health center is that we have, you know, the same medical record that they're using at John George, and we can communicate more closely, we can coordinate better, and that's certainly one of the benefits I hope to see over time is that we're working more closely with our partners in the acute care setting, both in John George, you know, and in the Highland Emergency Room, and you know, Alameda Hospital and San Leandro Hospital and, the, and those places, because uh, you're absolutely right, Mark, that I think that full continuum, it's important to coordinate across that full continuum of care um, that includes, you know, services that are outside of our scope. But the services that are inside of our scope are primary care, outpatient specialty care, um, so, you know, care that's delivered without people staying in the hospital overnight, dental care, and then enabling services like health education, interpretation, case management, and others. And so in 2020, we project we'll have about 20,000 medical visits uh, alone, really just from the first three categories um, in, within our health center. So quite a lot of services that, that we're providing. Could, could I ask another question um, sure. that might be related uh, um, sort of to something you just mentioned about um, outpatient care, inpatient care? 